You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. For more information about this podcast, please check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. My guest today is Jonathan Sagel, who I'm very pleased to welcome back. He was the first rock star that I interviewed on my other podcast, The Partially Examined Life, episodes 117 and then 118. So that more or less launched this podcast in particular because he is a bandmate of my first guest, David Lowry. They played together in Camper Van Beethoven throughout most of the 80s. Jonathan left right before their last album and produced a slew of solo releases, a couple of which were built under the moniker Hieronymus Firebrain and then Jack and Jill. If you look up his Bandcamp page, there are 46 releases, including instrumentals like this one, Auspicious Circles, that you're currently listening to, which is from a 2008 release called Sight, music created for the Maxine Mormon Dance Theater. Given the immense scope of his work, we're going to concentrate in our discussion today on long-form rock songs, listening to two of them off of his brand new album Superfluity, those songs being Asleep for a Hundred Years and the title track Superfluity. And then we're going to look back at a song called Civil Disobedience from his edgy Not Artsy album from 2003, and that very recording was repurposed with newly dubbed vocals and newly dubbed decorative parts for the Camper Van Beethoven reunion album New Roman Times from 2004. Finally, we'll conclude by listening to Hey You, I Know You Know Me from the album All Attractions from 2012. For more information, please see jonathansegel.com. Well, geez, thanks for doing this. I'm glad to circle back to you here. Yeah. And treat your, well, I can't say treat your catalog in earnest because I just spent the last little bit listening to the first 20 seconds of another dozen albums that I hadn't heard, the, the, <laughs> the soundtrack ones and the dance ones. And I will in fact have played, I picked the Auspicious Circles track from the site, one of your instrumentals for dance. But of course there are hundreds of options I could have chosen from if I just wanted a little slice of instrumental stuff. But that's not our focus today. We're talking about songwriting. Yes, songwriting. And in your case, not that this is all you do, but the ones that I picked here are more long form songwriting. So why should a a song, not a instrumental, not a jam, but a constructed song last six minutes, eight minutes? Like it's got stuff to do. It's got its message, but then it's also... It's got a lot of ups and downs to go through before it gets its message across. Yeah. A prog influence, or is this just... As your songwriting has progressed, you're just finding, like, I, I just have a little more musically and lyrically to say. I just need to <laughs> expand a little. I guess so. I mean, it's like I've always liked long-form things just because I'm very much bothered by, I think, the short attention span theater that everything is. I mean, I love pop music. I love pop songs. And the two-minute pop song is great, but there are other things that people can do, of course, musically. So Superfluity, this album that we're going to be talking about two songs off of, a double album. Yeah. With a lot of, we've got a handful of songs like this. It seems like you've got songs like the ones that we're going to play that are fairly developed. You also have songs, instrumental or vocal, that are more or less, I'm going to pick apart this one little riff and I'm going to kind of repeat it over and over and explore just that little bit. So it's like not even a whole song I'd. <laughs> so some of the first tracks off this album are fall into that category. Yeah, it's definitely microcosm, macrocosm sort of stuff. Yep. The whole record is about time, obviously, and about being able to see different lengths of time simultaneously, like being able to see yourself as in the now or yourself as a continuum. 
Well, let's use that theme. Could you have anything specifically to say this sleep for a hundred years? This is sort of the single, I guess, <laughs> off of the first disc here. This is definitely a, you know, a song of frustration, obviously, because I came to a point where I just couldn't even see the value of doing what I had been doing for most of my life. Music itself has been devalued so much that to continue being a musician, to continue to try to make recorded music was sort of ridiculous. It was Don Quixote-like, really. You continue to do it and there's perhaps no reason any longer. But, you know, I can't give it up. I just have to continue to do what I know how to do. And in that song, In Sleep for a Hundred Years, it's as if you could just skip giant sections of time as it goes by on Earth and just wait for things to get better <laughs> or wait for things to go away. So the spiritual equivalent of Walt Disney, like having your brain frozen until they have a cure for your specific biological disease. Right. There's a cultural disease that makes it such that the kind of artistic output that you're producing Perhaps in a different era, it would be a little more appreciated. Is that part of it? Not, I know it's not entirely self. <laughs> it's also a social commentary here. It's not just about your own career. Not at all. There's a lot of quotation in that song about all sorts of other rock music and even Dorothy Parker. You're holding a false war underneath your toe That's what makes you so incommunicado They've trained you well with zombies and dystopian films So when you're living in hell You'll know how to fit right Start over again 
this is obviously very interesting musically and lyrically, but since we were talking about the themes here, let's zoom in a little bit. We know the overall theme, but what you're holding a false war underneath your toe. It's what makes you so incommunicado. Tell me a little about the process by which something like this comes out as related to the theme. Like I was saying about this song being sort of like, this is the frustration at human beings not being able to see beyond their local world. One of the things that I wanted to talk about about this musically was how like the frustration of not being able to see beyond your just local territory that you live in, you're, you know, not having a long-term view of anything and wanting to stretch out of that. And a lot of musically, a lot of it is about those sorts of stretching. Most of it is just really simple chord progressions, right? E, A, G sharp, F sharp. Mm -hmm. But it does have a G sharp is a G sharp major and the F sharp is an F sharp minor. So there's like an augmented second in there. So like the thirds in those chords would be G sharp, A, B sharp, and C sharp. So there's like an augmented second in there. And then in the part before the chorus, I sleep for a hundred, I'll sleep for a hundred years. It stretches entirely out of key by playing the B going up to a E flat major chord and then back to the B before going back to the E. So it's using a lot of augmented seconds, augmented chords, augmented sorts of things like that. One of the sort of musical themes that happens on this record a lot is that augmented chord of the E major moving up to a C, which it could be a really trite chord progression, right? To go E E to C, like A to F mm -hmm. or something like that. But what ends up happening is I'm ending up using a lot of those augmented chords at the same time as the, the regular major chord. So this is how you're adding the tension as you're going. I've noticed mostly in the bass that at the end of some of the verses, then in the bass and then the rhythm guitar a little bit, the chords thicken, you know, you're still repeating the same thing lyrically in the melody, but we get some thickening to sort of propel you into the next section. Is that what you're talking about here? Or? Nobody, nobody sees you hiding from yourself in all of this yeah, that's the sort of thing that I mean. But as far as the utilization of those sorts of um, augmented stretching, it's like it's trying to stretch out of its out of key or out of itself. It's trying to break out of its normal major key sort of thing. You let it go upon the wind, never to be seen again. You wish that it worked out that way, but all of your detritus follows you anyway. So that right. sounds like it's about artistic production. Who is this aimed at? Is this you talking to yourself as artist again? Or no, I think that it's not meant to be talking about myself as artist, I think that really what I'm trying to do here is to point the finger at the whole human race and say, what you're doing is you're not paying attention to what your impact is upon the world around you. And a lot of what's happening in this song is like when it starts off with you're holding a false war underneath your toe and that's what makes you so incommunicado. It's the inability to be accused of that and not to be able to even have the ability to see what you're being accused of. People get so caught up in what they believe in that they can't even see the folly of what they're doing or what they're believing. One particular, so I guess this is the third verse, fourth verse. It was very illuminating that you sent me the lyrics to just see how you label these things. Because I was trying to figure out, like, is that the chorus? Is that the pre-chorus? No, if for you, it's just the A, the B, the C, the D. Yes. And the E section. You don't have to decide which is the chorus. They're just different. I like the idea of having a song that has multiple sections that it can go around in and use an additive form that will go A, B, A, B, A, B, C, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, E. 
something like that. There's some great songs that I love as far as composition. I think there's a Red House Painter song called San Geronimo that I just love because of the way that it has that build up before it, it finally gets to a section that you would call a chorus. It goes around moving between an A section and a B section, and then sometimes it'll get to that C section, and sometimes it'll get from that A section to the B section to the C section, and then go on to the chorus. It's like a uh, a rondo or something. It wants to keep coming back. I found myself increasingly in the last few years, not that complicated, but just having basically two choruses. So it's A section, B section, A section, B section, C section. And the C section is actually the real chorus. But then, you know, people are like, we're using this on a demo. Why is the chorus not coming until three minutes in? Like, you can't do that. That's <laughs> right. But like everything else on this album, it demands that you not be in a mode where you're listening to the first 15 seconds of things digitally and then moving on if it does not excite you, which is just the idea of anybody listening to a whole album. I can't like play for my family in the car a whole album anymore because that's not what people are used to. <laughs> I know. I wanted to make an album and I wanted to make a, a whole album, you know, that had themes. You got themes recurring. Yeah, themes recurring, music themes that recur, lyrical themes that recur. It's a piece. It's a very large work altogether. And a lot of this came from being so completely devastated by the fact that music is so devalued and there's no reason for anybody to make a record. But if there's no reason at all anymore for anybody to make a record, then you might as well make the record that you want to make, right? If you're going to make one. <laughs> sure. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed is that while fewer musicians are able to make a living in the past number of years, well, with the advent of digital streaming services, there's just no sales for records. Obviously, it's been terrible for musicians as a class of artists to try to overcome it. But one of the things that it has done is it's freed people to be able to do exactly what they want because they don't care about selling it anymore. Because if it's not going to sell anyway, then why shouldn't you just make the best record or the record that you want to make? We might as well get to this point. I was going to wait for later. but So I know you switched to a model. So I'm now a supporter of yours on Bandcamp which is one of these things that I didn't even realize nobody's ever even pitched to me. Yeah, there's Patreon. That's a thing. But right. to have, here's my, what, you've got 40 some albums up there. And for the, basically the Spotify model, except cheaper. And I don't know what the optimal price would be for this kind of thing, because like, yeah, I can support you for $5 a month, but can I support every artist that I like for $5 a month? I know it's sort of ridiculous. Ultimately, I think that it didn't really work. Like it was something that was presented by Bandcamp as something that you could do as an artist. You could say, you know, subscribe to me and I'll give you everything that I'm working on. And I suppose if you were really wealthy or really interested in like a million different artists, you could spend $5 a month on all of those people. But as far as like making this record, it honestly didn't really help that much financially in terms of the costs of making the record. But it was nice to know that somebody cared. <laughs> It's a movement in progress that this might be the future, whether it's through Patreon or something else. I recall like David Bowie doing something like this where he had some like, you will get everything that I produce, which, you know, at least if you've got a, a fan base like that to start with, maybe it was viable. But the fact that I didn't hear anything more about it makes me think maybe it didn't even work for him. I don't know if that's a viable alternative. I don't know if that's a really great way of selling music because it sort of goes into the cult of personality, really. You know, it's like, do you want to have access to this person, 
somehow, you know, support the person. I just wonder, with the kind of output that you have, I mean, I've had now reason a couple times to prep for interviews with you, and I'm the kind of person that likes to listen to everything somebody's put out anyway. And still, with all that, I still have not listened to everything you put out. It's a lot of right. stuff. And so it's got to be that you're putting out this volume. I'm not talking about, I know you've kind of segmented it so that if you just like, if you're only interested in the songs albums, if you're a camper fan and you want stuff that's like camper, but it's Jonathan's version and it goes in Jonathan's direction, then there's, you know, less than a dozen things to worry about with the rest of it. Apart from just being able to take advantage of opportunities to, you know, make something for a dance troupe and make something for a movie. Those are awesome opportunities. And if you're getting paid something for that time or I don't know, even that kind of stuff, are you cutting a profit if we're, since we're talking about this? I don't think that there's been a profit in my making music for quite a while at this point. I've been on tour for the past month, and so there's been a little bit of a profit there, but it's only because Camper has an audience that can fill up 500 seat halls, you know, over and over again. When I was talking to Bill Bruford, he was making a distinction between product guys and process guys and saying that he was definitely a process guy, that when he was in the band UK, some of those guys were like, okay, we're going to make these songs and these are going to be radio hits. They're going to do something. They're going to be, whereas he's like more like a jazz guy where every time he sits down, he wants, it's the process of doing it and working with people that are also, you know, like these finely trained racehorses. He was describing it. Are you both? Where do you come down in this continuum? I'm very interested in the process. For instance, the record that was just released that's under the band name Sistamai yeah. that I have, that's a very process-oriented record. It's based in improv, and then I sort of did arrangements with the music post-facto. It was about the improvisational recording of it and about the process with the musicians that were involved. And that's essentially what that music is about. But I would say that this music that's on Superfluity is – much more product-oriented music. It's much more like pop music has this ability to be sculpted in its mixes to make it into like finalized musical sculpture. And that includes not only the songs like this, but so the song right after this, you've got about three instrumentals right after this, that some of which go on like these psychedelic breakdowns, some of them that go on quite a long time. I mean, it's a double album. You're filling up, I think one of them is 24 minutes long. The reason for that was that it's not really like this adheres to any sort of storyline, really. But it is sort of like a concept record. And I think that the idea of sleep for 100 years, where the character is just so frustrated by the current state of affairs that he just wants to block it all out and let time pass and see what happens. But then the thing is, you can let a year pass and not that much will change, or 10 years pass, or 100 years pass, or 1,000 years pass, or a million years pass, you know? And then at this point, we're talking about changes that are going to be happening in sidereal time, you know? It's like in the time of star motion. And so those instrumentals that happen after this are really illustrating the passage of that much time. Yeah, sure. Well, and I, it felt obviously also... I'm now going to sleep. So now we're entering the dream imagery part. We're entering the swirly psychedelic stuff. That's one of the exactly wonderful non-drug related ways to interpret psychedelia. That it's, it's dream imagery. I've been doing a different, a lot of different kinds of music for a long time. And so it's like I was able to put sort of everything and the kitchen sink into the longest of the instrumental pieces there. It has like everything that I know about how to make music really. 
we'll get to the second song pretty quickly here because we've already talked for a while. Just a few musical elements here. So even just at the very start where the vocals come in, you're doing these parallel octaves and then you've got the backing vocals come in later. It's very angular. The effect is very Gregorian overall. Mm-hmm. You'll know how to fit right in. You let it go. And that seems not terribly uncommon in your work. In this case, it looked like it might have been in a way to have a sort of darkness at the beginning that then could contrast with when you actually get to the say something, you know, the more happy. (laughs) And especially, you know, it's the very, very last C section that you wish I wish I could swim like dolphins where you have the beautiful violin stuff finally comes in like this in many other songs would have been like right up front. But you've got this just <laughs> gradual, very gradual growth towards the prettiness here. So where does this Gregorian thing come from to start off with? I think that part of that has to do with I like to write two-part counterpoint or two-part harmony. The idea of having two voices either moving in contrasting motion or moving in parallel motion. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also the fact that I'm no longer scared of open fifths. <laughs> When I was studying composition, you know, in college, they're very picky about moving in parallel fifths, you know, and or, or parallel octaves. It's not something that Bach wanted us to do, but uh, <laughs> exactly. But it was it was very Gregorian, yeah. It's a very uh, older sort of chant idea, and it sounds great. I think. I mean, it sounds great, especially in spaces like if you had voices doing that in a church or something like that, it's, it's a great sound. Well, and then, you know, it's been a very common thing for you to have the female backing vocal as an extension of your voice, which I know you've changed singers. Has it been mostly the same couple of singers over the years? i never sure on the solo albums. Yeah, there's a few different women who have sung on, but on this record, it's Kelly Atkins. And Kelly was amazing to work with on this record because she comes from a band called 20 Minute Loop. And she also sings in Kitka, which is a women's choir that does mostly Eastern European music. And I knew her from Kitka, and then I was listening to 20 Minute Loop that I really love. It's her and Greg Giles, I think is his name. They sing really well together. But I asked her if she would be willing to do parts for this record. And when I started sending her some of the music, she came back with amazing things that I had never thought of. And I thought, oh, well, that's great. Keep going. And she's like, really? Can I just do what I want? And I was like, oh, yes, please. So this song, other than her, since this doesn't have real drums on it, this was entirely you, right? Or did you import other folks for this one? It does have some real drums on it. Oh, this one does. I tried to record drums to the drum machine that was basically, I had made a drum machine map for the song so that I could lay it out and see how it was supposed to be and see how it was supposed to fit together. And then I tried recording drums with three different drummers. And so there are bits of all three different drummers. So these big, like that is probably my favorite part of the song is these giant, stupid snare things that then actually don't lead to anything. Like they're just a riff and then, oh, you know, we're actually just going to stay at this level of intensity right now. Exactly. Yeah. And the drum machine stays there. It has different kinds of drum machines going on in there, but it's sort of a collage of many different It's got Andreas Axelsson playing. He's the one that's playing in the A sections, the verses, essentially, where it's just like ticky, 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 ticky. And then Matthias Olsen is playing on some of the the B sections. And then Chris Peterson is actually playing on the choruses. Ah, 
And was this all done remotely? Chris Peterson's yes. in Australia, right? So, yeah, he lives in Australia. Yeah. Okay. All right. So just kind of throwing it out to enough people until you get the pieces that you want back, <laughs> enough to work with. Yeah, exactly. And then it was all assembled at home and put together. It's a very difficult song to mix, as you might imagine. It's got different – each section has different guitars, for instance, like different quality, different sounds of guitars. and Each section has different keyboards, that sort of thing. So it's like I sort of wanted it to end up – each section have its own sonic identity. So it would be completely distinct from the section around it. Well, and the thing that initially attracted me to this song was the happy little – what I thought was – it doesn't make a bop, 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 bop. No, no, you're not saying bop, bop, bop. You're saying fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> like so, so the fact that the prettiest little part of the song is actually a, a, literally a fuck you is a wonderful touch there. All right, well, let's throw out the second one. We can always return to parts of this to talk more about the musical or lyrical techniques. But we want to do the, the title track. This is on the second disc. It's about the third song in Superfluity from Superfluity. Superfluity or Phenomenon and On, but then I saw you went and named one of the instrumentals that. I went back and forth on which one should be called which. I'm not sure if I got it right. Simple beauty of being able to see 
So starting off with this nice, this actually reminds me of one of those old Genesis, heavily guitar 12 string layered prog song, flowy kind of things. And I know that this is not even the first time there are other songs on this disc where you have a similar pretty guitar thing to kind of start it off. Was that how this started? Like, are you, are you patching together things that you'd sort of come up with independently messing about? Yeah, definitely. There's that sort of finger picking B minor to A. That's the intro to this song is something that was also used. There's those little instrumentals that are around it, the luxury of living and the luxury of dying yeah. that also have that same finger picking sort of stuff. And as I was working on all of these songs, I was at Matthias Olsen's studio in Stockholm and I was like, okay, now what we need to do is we need to, we need to actually play some songs and without telling him what to do at all, I went and played the uh, baritone guitar on this song beginning to end. He just jammed with me right then. He and I played the basic tracks for this in one take. Well, that does explain like I was feeling like, wow, this is not even quite in time when he starts to come in, but then like it locks it. Like it sounds more like it gets that early seventies vibe. Right. Yeah. That seemed the main difference between this and the other one, that the other one did not have any kind of underlying band presence to it at all. And whereas this one obviously had real drums I find when the vocals come in on here after, you know, sort of a three layered minute long instrumental intro. So the way that you come in on the very first line, the supernova and like, like it almost sounds like you're midway through the verse already. Like <laughs> this is an interesting melodic approach to how are you thinking of this? Gosh, I think that the lyrics develop out of the music. A lot of times 
I think I hear the lyrics developing out of music once I've like r- written a tune or written something that I play over and over to myself and then lyrics develop out of that where the melodies sort of like stick. And for this, I think that there was a lot of that, a lot of introduction, a lot of introductory music. But for me, I think that's where the song began mm-hmm. is where those lyrics came in. And I think that it's odd to come right with that statement, but the whole song is a little bit not like a normal song. I don't know how I, if I can really say how it uh, developed the way that it did. Or- I mean, I've noticed just even from your first Wishing to Course, these first songs that I heard by yours, the lyrics are often not just kind of sing song along with the music. It's more like shove ideas into here. And now I'm talking about it and like there's sort of more syllables per right. measure than one would expect. Or Now we don't have that here. It is slowed down to kind of meet with the music. You know, so I'm surprised you're, you're saying that, I guess when I hear a statement like the lyrics come out of the song, like to me, that usually means that I have a very definite something that I'm humming and like, that's the nice melody. And then what, well, what does that suggest? Okay. So basically what are the simplest rhymes or, you know, things that I can, as opposed to coming with a page, you know, three pages of scribbles, which I often do as well. And like, okay, now I got to put this in, like, this sounds more like that then, but you're saying, no, these actually, you had music first. I definitely had music first and it, and these sorts of lyrics came out of it. But I mean, obviously there was an intention as to what was going to be said or what was going to be spoken about in the song. But I mean, the idea had to be presented like right at the beginning of the supernova, a supernova or a cat or both just events. That had to be something that was stated right off the bat in the lyrics of the song so that we could actually get around to talking about value of these events or value of something being alive or something not being alive. What was more important? Is something more important because it's alive? Isn't it amazing to be alive? That sort of thing, which is mostly what this song ultimately has to say. It again, like the previous song, and I understand this is not the intention, the let it go upon the wind, never to be seen again. Like that suggested to me, like the skip over the moon, get out while you can. It can't happen too soon. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. The whole thing sounds like it's a contemplation of potential suicide. But it's not so much potential suicide as global suicide, I think. The point that I was coming from when I was writing this material was human beings have blown it. I think we've fucked it up. And I don't know if there's really any coming back from how far we fucked up our environment and how far we fucked up ourselves. Maybe this was our run. This is as good as it gets for us. Reflecting on that, what can you find the power to complete the movement, expressing disappointment? That's just where the troll went. What does this mean as a fit into that idea here? Like, what is the movement to be completed here? I think it would be uh, fulfilling what you could be or what humanity could be, you know, as a group of conscious entities, as opposed to just living day to day and allowing the resources to all be used and die out. Well, I got to say, I like the oblique way of putting it rather than save the world, save the chip, you know, that being (laughs) these straightforward social commentary songs that sort of make me cringe. (laughs) It's far more fatalist, though, is is the thing. It's just like, it's not, I don't know if there is any save the world anymore. I don't know that it's possible for us to save ourselves any longer. We might have blown it. And so the instrumental sections in here, are these somehow illustrating that? So you've got a couple of places where actually I'm surprised to hear that you didn't have bass on these initial sessions as well, right? The bass was added after these, you and Andreas doing the drums? Me and Mat- Matthias. Yeah, I was playing baritone guitar, actually. The baritone guitar is sort of the root of this song and the, the root of its harmonics. 
Oh, so are those places where I'm hearing bass solo? Is that actually baritone guitar? There is bass, but it's mostly doubling the baritone guitar. But most of the, the bass solo stuff is, is baritone guitar. Yeah, that's baritone guitar. All right. Well, that explains. I like the fury that you get going when you're, you think you're taking part when your hand is on the lever, etc., get a lot of good tension building up there that then gets released through this. Okay. Now we're going to stop and have a little funky part. Yeah. <laughs> is there a, the word light motif is coming to mind. I don't know if that's the right word where the, the instrumentals act out what you've been talking about. Is that, <laughs> what is the, the classical word for that? And now everyone dance. And then the music goes, dun, 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 you know, has a little dance part. Yeah. The expression of the motives. You know, I hate to be a cop out on that, but I think that it's for me, uh, that was just, I wasn't really thinking of being so literal. Oh, okay. It needed to do something. Well, again, yeah. I'm trying to get at what makes a song like this, you know, what makes you decide to make it eight minutes long as opposed to five, as opposed to 10. Well, it just seems like it's the natural growth as you're going through. But so you're saying you, you had the structure all planned out when you're playing with the drummer, right? I didn't. I had a number of ideas that I wanted to do and I just played with him and then later made it into a song. And a lot of times I would say that I would edit out bits of, you know, the drums and baritone guitar and compact it perhaps, but I don't think I did on this. Oh, okay. Well, that's surprisingly coherent. I think that it's essentially through composed and performed. And then the song was essentially made on top. And of then that. I forget when it, the very end where you had the phenomenon and all, like, is that where you guys just stopped? And then you just wrote this extra, or you're still just strumming, you're doing a slow part. I don't remember if drums are still playing at that point. I think I was just slowing down and going into the, uh, the relative major. All right. So definitely if this was an old Genesis tune, it would be guys sitting down together and figuring out these parts and fighting over the structure for a month and then recording it. Whereas this has a lot of the elements of that, but is more spontaneous. And it goes also along with this methodology that I've been using a lot lately, which is to do improvisational stuff and then go back and work with it in Pro Tools, essentially like finding the parts that are the good motives, good musical motives to accentuate or good rhythmic ideas to accentuate or reuse, that sort of stuff. And just using what was initially played to make the rest of the material. Let's get our third song on the table here. So we're reaching back a little. This is a civil disobedience from Edgy Not Antsy, uh-huh. right? From 2003, which then got actually made into a Camper Van Beethoven song on the reunion album, which at that point was surprising to see something that was just authored by you on that album. So that version was the first time I heard this. I did not even realize that you had a version from a year earlier that they pretty much used exactly. It's very slightly different on the camper version because there's more a slide guitar and piano. Well, yeah, well, there's an extra person. So yeah, let's hear this version. So this is the original here. Also a pretty long six minutes long, but not because there are so many sections that it's just because it's relaxed, right? <laughs> it's a much more normal song structure. And of course has a lot of the elements of camper in it. Even here. Did you have that in mind? <laughs> Was there any notion in my, like that, okay, this is sort of like a Greg Leischer sort of thing? No, I'm sure not. No, okay. <laughs> I think that it was just, if you consider when it was written, which would be like directly post 9-11. And, ah, yes. And, you know, with the pendulum swinging to the right at that point, 
I was seriously worried about the need for civil disobedience and worried about being on watch lists. And I think that that's very highly prescient at the moment as well.
So super tasteful guitar parts over here, this spaghetti Western sort of thing. You know, I could see why they would survive pretty much intact. So when you move to the camper version, are you playing the guitar and then Greg was doing the slide stuff or did he take over that main part and then you did all this extra piano and gushing around? It was just using my guitar parts and then we just took out some of the extra. One of the funny things about this song actually is that when I was recording it, I had recently bought a Gretsch double anniversary. And so I was insistent upon using that for that song. And that was uh, part of why that song sounds like it does is because of that guitar, I think. Am I understanding that the camper version is actually this very same recording with parts replaced? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, that explains why it's about the same length and (laughs) the same tempo. All right. It's because at the time, David thought that it would fit well thematically with New Roman Times. Well, and you don't usually sing in a voice that I could so easily picture him doing. But like, yeah, this is exactly in his range. And when they come to your home. Right. You can still hear more of you when you get to the chorus in that version. But then there's just much more layering. I was trying to decide myself. So, I mean, it's really powerful in this version under the, will you know what to do? Just the da 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 like that. Yeah. Even though the camper version has little nice swoopy stuff over it, it almost diminishes the power of that attack. Like, I'm not sure which one I like better. Yeah, they're different. There is actually even a third version that has never been released, I think, that has Greg playing most of the guitar stuff on it. Ah, so what do you want to say about this in terms of the way you wrote this? And was this this lyrics first? Was this the riff first? How How did this one come together? The riff was first, that C to G to B minor. It's definitely a clash sort of song. I can see, like listening back to it now, I could see that it's very influenced by Guns of Brixton or something like that. Yeah, I don't normally associate the clash with something so slow and long. And <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know. But it's the sentiment, the political sentiment of it is very much that way, yeah. Yeah, when they kick in for your front door, how, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I guess, can you say a little about the evolution of your style between this and... And the modern stuff, the stuff from Superfluity that we're talking about? Yeah. I think that the Superfluity stuff is, in a way, is coming full circle because it's much more like the storytelling record, I think, in that it's a large piece that has many musical ideas that are interassociated and has thematic material that goes running through the entire record, right? So it's like after storytelling, I went to do more uh, Hieronymus Firebrain, and then that sort of wasn't – I wasn't getting anywhere with that, really. I mean, it's like I like, the, I like the records, but it's like it wasn't that interesting for most of the people that were listening. And so I really started simplifying what I was doing, and the result of that was the Jack and Jill records. This area – where the song Civil Disobedience comes from, from Edgy Not Dancy, was directly after those Jack and Jill records when I was just first starting to make records under my own name again, instead of Hieronymus Firebrain or Jack and Jill. And I think that it's a lot of my intention at the time, like the whole Edgy Not Dancy record is, was really trying to be sort of like little pop jams, sort of like a Brian Eno pop record, like from the mid seventies or something like that. Except that it's long enough that you've got a bunch of pop gems stacked at the beginning, and then they turn into stuff like this and other more experimental things. The Worm on the Hook song, what that that one, that reminded me a lot of parts of the superfluity. Or Everyone's a Sucker, what's the name of that one? 
Oh, yeah, the world of suckers, yeah. The world of suckers, yes. But I think that, yeah, it's sort of moving back again now towards, over the course of the past decade, probably moving back towards more complicated music, more complicated songs. As much as I love the perfect two and a half minute pop masterpiece, you know, it's like I also really enjoy music that you get out of it what you put into it. In other words, the more time you spend listening to it, the more you'll hear in it. I'm trying to, you know, make music that has depth on a lot of different levels. I mean, not only the musicality of it, but the lyrical level. Yeah, well, just looking at this one, I mean, maybe this is what makes it so singable, but we've got your rhymes, home, alone, list, missed, wrong, along, away, day, just the normal stuff that flows and the fact that you can use that and yet still have it say what you want to say, like that, of course, is the, the trick of doing a pop song. But when you're have something more like the verse of superfluity. I don't know if that gives you more freedom or, you know, I find it hard to write things myself that don't rhyme because it's sort of too free. Unless I wrote it on a piece of paper before even coming to the guitar, I just, I'm less comfortable with the free verse thing, I guess, in the context. It's definitely hard because if you do like come up with a set of words in a particular order that you like and you really want to end up using them in a song, then you really do want to have them rhyme because a song has rhymes, right? But if it's just like a particular series of words that you like, and like I like the way that this falls off your tongue, a butterfly in a vat of flower or you know whatever odd thing. And once you put it into song – you do have this tendency to want to make things rhyme and want to make things work out that way. But some of the greatest songs, and David Lowry is really good about this also, is the greatest songs that he has have rhymes that don't work. They don't actually rhyme. Or they just obviously, they get to the part where they're supposed to rhyme and they just don't. Can you think of an example? Is it purposefully jarring or is it just that you don't notice because you hear what he's trying to say and it fits in the rhythm and so it doesn't have to rhyme? I think it's sort of purposefully jarring, but I think that it it does work. Like, I think that All Her Favorite Fruit has some of that in it, you know, where it's like prose, essentially. The perfect reference for our listeners, that they can just go listen yeah. to that. It's like he's written a story, and it's not necessarily a rhyming story. It's not really a ballad. It's just prose. I always have the tendency to want to rhyme things, even if it makes the lyrics unreadable outside of the song. Sure. But when you're doing the kind of thing like I was pointing out in, in Wishing the Course, with that kind of thing, are you bringing external lyrics to stuff in there? Or are you just have in your head a very tricky rhythm and it's got a lot of syllables and then you could put this thing and then, you know, sort of like something from a musical is the, the vocal rhythmic idea. And then you put the lyrics in that. I think that I'm not often coming with lyrics to the song. I'm much more developing the lyrics from what's happening when I'm playing the song. Like with Still Wishing, of course, it's like that was a process of the way that I was strumming the guitar. And it's weird because it's in a 5-8, five, 5-8. Eight, five, eight. I was really interested in these like groups of threes and twos. You know, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two. And it makes a larger pattern of 5-4. And I think that those smaller subgroups of threes and twos were what I was listening to in my head when the lyrics started to form. Now, it's interesting to me that, so that's, one of my favorite prog bands, Vandergraaff Generator, when they would have one of their long instrumental sections, almost always it would be some repetitive like this kind of exactly what you're talking about. In superfluity, I mean, the closest you get to that is like you didn't feel the need to go to that rhythmic place at all. Was that part of just because 
you would have to plan that. Now that I understand that you did this live with a drummer, <laughs> you can't plan. <laughs> now we're going to go to the five, four section. Like, how do you? Exactly. If I had worked it out with Matthias and, you know, Matthias Olson is a drummer who loves an odd time signature. So I think he would have been very happy with that. All right. We don't necessarily have to get into this, but just since this was the one that got brought into Camper Van, I just heard for the first time your Firebrain Plane Crash Volume 1. What's the actual name of that? The Plane Crash Tape? Yeah. Yes. Like, were you generating a lot of material back in the day that sort of didn't make it into the camper? Because a lot of it wasn't really like necessarily pop music or wasn't necessarily music that would work in a band context, maybe. At the time, before like you actually got to back together and did some more albums, I was, of course, anytime you like a band that's broken up and you kind of then hear their solo stuff and picture like, well, what would the sum of the parts here be? And I sort of picture a camper, you know, hearing all your various solo outings, the various members of being something that is more like the Grateful Dead. I haven't seen you live recently. <laughs> so I don't know if this is where, where, but like it's a band that could very easily do that, where there's more vocal switching off. There's more kind of like what the third camper album was doing that you could take on interstellar overdrive or some other, you know, that there would be room for some of these kind of art rock things, but yet it would still have lyrics as sharp as sharp could be. And, you know, just kind of the best of all the possible things. I would like to think so as well. I would like to think that you are correct in that assumption. It seems like the recent group album that you had was more of a made up of group written group jams and then i guess i read that then david would add lyrics sort of like the last talking heads material was the same kind of stuff that the group action was around just creating these instrumental textures and things that no individual could have done by themselves but sort of that's everybody sort of has their still assigned role and so nobody steps on each other's toes and there's no question of you bringing in you know your three 20 minute songs and having any expectation that the group would do something with that but i think that that's just because that's what the band needs at this point and everybody has other things that are going other musical projects that are going on outside of that you know like david has even done his conquistador spoken word album and you know the monks of doom have a new record coming out and victor has many records that he's been working on all that sort of stuff so it's like everybody in the band in camper van beethoven has other things going on so i think that they don't need to have as much of what they feel is closest to them presented in Camper Van Beethoven the whole time. Yet you've been able to use Victor at least and and often in your recent solo improv gig were you using the who's playing drums for Camper on this tour? I don't even Chris know. Chris Peterson. Oh he is. He is yeah. back. Oh say was he also with Victor being your backup band for those yes. improv gigs or okay. Yeah, so that's you kind of get in the best of that world that you get these people that you're super comfortable with to yet do a completely different sort of thing. And it's nice because it's like being able to play with these guys. Well, it's incredible. When we first got together after the band had not been a band for about a decade and we started rehearsing to play the first show that we were going to do at Knitting Factory in, the, in New York in 2002, we were rehearsing and I remember looking around in this rehearsal studio and looking around and going, oh, this is how I learned how to play in a band with these people. So all of the bands that I played out with in the 90s were informed by playing with Camper Van Beethoven and playing with Chris Peterson and Victor and Greg and David. So it's like we know each other and how we play so well. Well, it's quite nice, actually. Well, it's great that you have, yeah, that you've had the energy and the ability. I think a lot of the pressures that maybe bands felt more in the past is, 
you know, if I'm going to do a solo thing, I kind of have to go all in. Like I've, you know, read many stories about, yeah, it was time for the band to record another album, but I kind of, you know, want to do the solo thing. So I had to make a choice. And so I ended up leaving that band. But now, you know, you have got the recording quality at your disposal to make. So this is a way of introducing our final song here. Hey, you, I know you right. know me. So this is as kind of poppy a song maybe as you'd want. It's, it's still pretty long. <laughs> as these things go and we're playing the short version there's actually two versions on the record even the short as short as it could possibly be is still seven minutes or something like that but this is that this song is one of those songs that took less time to write than it does to play i can imagine that it was one of those songs that just kind of came to me in an instant and i think i wrote the words down you know i mean it only has one chord progression and it's the stupidest of freely doo-wop chord progressions it's like a one five six four doo-wop well you get to show off your little arrangement skills and putting the nice strings and the nice little bits <laughs> right exactly well i've just been really impressed with these last you know the all attractions record and then even more so the record after that shine out yeah. I was just blown away by uh, quite a lot of the arrangements on that of just the way that you're really combining that it wasn't now I'm going to do a little pop song and now I'm going to do a long rambly improv thing that you've been more and more bringing these things together. I wasn't necessarily interpreting them as improv. Now, after talking to you, I'm thinking more that these textures are probably things that came out of improvs. Yes, exactly. A lot of it does come out of improvisation. But, you know, I mean, it's again, the, the fact that the records are good. It's just a product of being able to do it for a long enough time, I, I would think. You know, it's like you, if you do something long enough, you're going to get good at it, hopefully. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just going to suck your whole life, which, which may be. Well, I hope folks check those out. You know, a lot of it is on Spotify, of course, but your Bandcamp page to really get... Yeah, you can listen to everything there. Yeah, to really get a thorough... <laughs> look at what this stuff is because some of the more fringe projects were in some way sort of more informative of kind of where some of these ideas that are eventually going into superfluity, like what would build that up? You don't go straight, you know, in a straight line through from album to album, it's album, but then all these weird sonic experiments and maybe some of that stuff gets fed back into the next album. Right. Yeah. Expanding one's technique, basically. Yep. Yep. Just learning to practice with different studio techniques and different instrumental techniques and that sort of things. Yeah. All right. Have a, have a great rest of your day. Thanks for doing this again. I'll never know. 
Over here. 
In the shadows where you run In the crowds along the platforms of every subway station In every thread that comes undone I'm using all my mental powers Just to make you turn your head Then all the spells and all the talismans I'm searching for will be redundant It will be unsaid So I say, hey you Hey you, hey you, look over here. Hey you, hey you. I know you know me. Right, always a pleasure to talk to Jonathan. I have the new Superfluity double album in my hands right now. It is available. Highly recommend it if you enjoyed this episode. Now, I'm sure I will have some more Camper Van Beethoven folks back on the podcast at some point, but I'm trying to leave a decent interval between members of the same band. That's the only reason I waited this long for Jonathan. But you should prove him wrong in his suspicion that music has been devalued and go set up a recurring donation to him on Bandcamp or just buy an album. Again, you can check him out at jonathansagel.com. And my music, including a 90-minute Christmas song, which was my first introduction to Jonathan, he, for no money, played on this thing that I sent him over the internet, along with numerous other artists. It's called The Twelve Interminable Days of Christmas. You can get it at marklint.com. All right, be sure to come back for more. Got about five more episodes in the bag already. Ken Stringfellow is next from the Posies, then Clive Farrington from When in Rome... Glenn Mercer from the Feelies, Carla Kane from the San Francisco band The Corner Laughers, and I'm just about to talk to the inimitable Steve Wynn. So until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Lintzmeyer signing off. Mm-hmm.